All right, so this morning we will be in Galatians chapter 5. So again, uh, for those who are just walking in, there are notes in the back as usual. Um, But let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started with the class here. Father, we thank you for one another. We thank you for this day that we have set aside to worship you and, uh, among other things, to uh, hear from your word, to learn from it, and um, and to worship you through your word. So we ask as we gather to study your word that you would guide us uh, through the reading of your word, through the interpretation of your word, and that you would help us to understand you better through your word. And uh, help us, Lord, as we go from here to Uh, learn how to apply what your word tells us to our everyday lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Okay, so as I said, we'll be in Galatians 5 this morning, and uh, uh, as I'm thinking about it, we are in our second to last week of this class now, so we'll cover Galatians 5 this week and Galatians 6 next week, and that will be uh, the end. So, uh, before I jump into the text for today, let me just give a little bit of a, a, an overview and a, a recap of where we've been in previous weeks. In the previous weeks, we have seen that Paul has argued throughout this letter, it's really the heart of the letter, that justification, in other words, being right with God, comes only through grace, meaning a gift of God, through faith uh, in Christ alone. Uh, meaning that no one is justified by observing the Torah, uh, or, you know, as Paul puts it, works of the law. Um, That is, no one is justified either by being a part of the people of Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, nor by their moral achievements, none of those things. No human status, no human accomplishment, whatever it may be, suffices for being right before God. Um, But the only way that a person is justified is by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Then in Galatians 3 and 4, specifically in the last couple weeks, we saw Paul offer various scriptural proofs from the Old Testament to prove that this is in fact the case. And part of what he's doing there is not so much arguing against uh, the Old Testament or something, arguing against when when Paul says that we're not under the law, uh, when Paul says that the law cannot justify you, he is not somehow arguing that the law is bad or arguing against everything that the Old Testament said. In fact, in Galatians, 3 through 4, what he does instead is to say, look, if you ever thought that the law could justify you, then you have actually fundamentally misunderstood what the Jewish scripture said about the law, because in fact, no one was ever justified by the law, even in the Old Testament. Um, And that's his argument in chapters 3 and 4. So now, Uh, we come to the final chapters of the letter, chapters 5 and 6, and in these chapters, what Paul is primarily concerned to do is to spell out what it means to live by grace, faith, and the Spirit rather than living under the law. So, contrasting living by grace, faith, and the Spirit versus living under the law. And the fundamental question of chapter 5 is really how should people who are no longer under the law, who are free from the law, live? How do people free from the law live? Um, That is his basic question that he wants to address in chapter 5. I should also say as we come to chapters 5 and 6 that while I've said previously 
that chapter 2, verses 15 through 21 is regarded by most people to be Paul's thesis statement in this letter, his main idea in the entire letter. A lot of uh, commentators have also seized upon chapters 5 and 6 now as the real climax of the letter. While chapter 2, verses 15 through 21 is the thesis statement, so to speak, chapters 5 and 6 are really what he's been trying to get to the entire time. Uh, so we get a close look in this chapter at what Paul is primarily concerned with, as he, uh, above all else perhaps, as he writes this letter to the Galatians, what it all means, why it's important. Uh, so let me go ahead and read the first 15 verses for us, and then I'll pause there, and we'll discuss those. Paul starts out in chapter 5, verse 1, writing, For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm and do not become entangled again in the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, tell you that if you get circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Again, I testify to every man who gets circumcised that he is obliged to perform the whole law. You are disjoined from Christ, you who are trying to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, in the Spirit and by faith, eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision suffices for anything, but rather faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you so that you were not persuaded by the truth? This persuasion is not from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole dough. I am confident about you in the Lord that you will be of no other mind, but the one who is troubling you will bear the judgment, whoever he is. But if I am still preaching circumcision, brothers, why am I still persecuted? The scandal of the cross is then removed. Would that those who are upsetting you might just castrate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let freedom become an occasion for the flesh, but rather slave for one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in a single utterance. In this one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Uh, okay, so that's the first half of this chapter. Uh, and yes, my only comment that I'm going to make about verse 12 is that is literally what the Greek says. And I'm just going to leave that there. Um, but, uh, but when we read this chapter, we start off in verse 1 with this grand statement, for freedom Christ has set us free. And I would argue that uh, that, is, that is the banner of this entire chapter. Everything else that Paul has to say in this chapter is somehow expounding on this basic statement, for freedom Christ has set us free. And, and what Paul means here is, is clearly freedom from the law. Um, that's clear if we were to go back and read the last paragraph that he wrote back in chapter 4, verses 21 through 32, where he's talking uh, specific, specifically about slavery and freedom uh, regarding the law, concerning the law. Uh, it becomes clear that in verse 1 here, uh, he's really talking about freedom from the law when he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. But the question that arises then, if we, if we have freedom from the law, the question that naturally arises is, what do free people do? How should free people live? Does freedom from the law mean freedom to do whatever you want? Or is freedom from the law also freedom for something better? These are some of the fundamental questions that Paul has to address in this chapter. 
And so uh, we can kind of organize this chapter a little bit by uh, looking at a sort of a one, two, three, three points um, as it happens that Paul, uh, three sort of answers that Paul gives to that basic question of how free people should live, people free from the law. And his first point that we see in verses 1 through 6 here is uh, the first thing, uh, the first thing that you shouldn't do as a free person is to return to slavery. Uh, That's the first way that people who are free from the law should live. Don't return to your former slavery. Um, Literally, that's what he says in the rest of verse 1. So stand firm and do not become entangled again in the yoke of slavery. Now, of course, the interesting thing here is that if Paul is talking about freedom and slavery uh, regarding the law, um, then he means, as he says, do not return to, your, to the uh, yoke of slavery. In some sense, he seems to mean uh, do not return to the law. Don't return to try to being justified by the law. Um, but the interesting thing here is, of course, that Paul in Galatians is speaking to Gentiles. He's not speaking to Jewish Christians. He's speaking to Gentile Christians. And, and so, uh, you know, in a sense, they were never following the law in the first place. They weren't under the law to begin with. What they're considering now is becoming under the law, um, seeking justification through the law, as uh, Paul will say in verse 4. Um, but what seems to be going on here, the, what, how is it that he can um, link following the law, choosing to be under the law with their former lives, which were actually pagan. Um, What seems to be the case here is that Paul really likens any life apart from Christ to slavery. Um, Whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, um, before Christ, apart from Christ, you were a mere slave to some legal or religious standard. Um, whether it was a pagan standard or, or the Jewish law itself, in some way or another, you were seeking justification through some sort of legal or religious standard before you came to Christ. And so in that regard, it's all slavery, whether it was paganism or whether it's the Jewish law that we're talking about. And so to choose to seek justification under the law would be to return to the same slavery that you were in effect under before you came to Christ. Um, it's, it's all seeking, some, seeking justification through some sort of legal or religious standard or another. Um, so that seems to be his train of thought there in verse 1. Now, uh, verse 2 requires a little bit of explanation, I think. Uh, Paul says, look, I, Paul, tell you that if you get circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And so what is this? This is a big statement. If you get circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Uh, What's he getting at here? What's he talking about? Well, I don't think that uh, Paul is meaning to denigrate being Jewish. Uh, That's pretty obvious from all of Paul's letters. Uh, Paul himself is a Jew, and... um, and being a Jew is actually very meaningful to him even now. If you were to turn over to Romans 9 through 11, um, it would become very evident that Paul does not, as Paul is not saying that there is anything wrong with being Jewish. Um, it's not, uh, nor is there anything wrong with the physical act of circumcision in, a, in and of itself, as though uh, anyone who's circumcised is, is automatically um, 
outside of a relationship with Christ. That's not what he's talking about. But uh, what he really seems to be talking about, we have to remember again here that Paul is speaking to a group of Gentiles who are seeking to be circumcised specifically in order to be justified before God. Um, being circumcised in order to be justified before God, um, which is, in effect, to reject Christ. This is what he has said repeatedly throughout the letter. We could go back to uh, chapter 1, verse 6, or chapter 2, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 4, uh, all of those places where, um, where the, the issue is that if you are seeking justification through anything other than what God has done through Jesus Christ, then you are, in effect, rejecting Christ by seeking another justification, another path to justification. This becomes actually really clear, too, when we, when we look at verse 4. Uh, he, continuing in the same train of thought, says, "'You are disjoined from Christ, you who are trying to be justified by the law.'" You have fallen from grace. So we see there very clearly that the, the problem here is not circumcision as a physical act, uh, nor is it um, that there's anything um, negative about being Jewish. Um, the problem is specifically trying to seek justification in that way, trying to seek justification through the law or through circumcision, which is um, part of observing Torah, part of observing the law. So, and, but the other, uh, as we look at verse 4, um, we see too that, uh, that, again, the issue of, of rejecting Christ, um, to try to seek justification through the law is to reject uh, Christ as the path that God has provided for our justification. Um, and, and what he says here is very serious. On the one hand, it really does seem in verse 4, you are disjoined from Christ, you have fallen from grace, that um, Paul entertains the real possibility of rejecting Christ for another way, um, which, is, which is what it would mean to try to be justified um, by any other means. Now, I'll go ahead and say that right off the bat that as we read verse 4, on the one hand, he seems to entertain that real possibility uh, of people rejecting Christ for another way, but we also need to compare that with what he says a few verses later in verse 10, uh, where he expresses his confidence. He says, I am confident about you in the Lord that you will be of no other mind. Uh, so he has a confidence in the Lord, not confidence in them, but confidence in the Lord um, that they will ultimately make the right decision. Um, but but there is an extreme serious, nevertheless, to what's at stake here that we see in verse 4, um, to try to seek justification by any other means than what God has done, than what God has done in Jesus Christ uh, would be to be disjoined from Christ. Um, Going on into verse 5, one of the things we see here is that Paul contrasts seeking justification by the law with, uh, with what he says believers are doing when he says we, for we in the Spirit and by faith, in the Spirit and by faith eagerly await the hope of righteousness. So in the Spirit and by faith are contrasted uh, with seeking justification uh, by the law as, uh, as a separate way. Um, 
And, and as Paul uses these terms throughout this chapter, uh, in the Spirit, by faith, uh, he uses these almost synonymously. Um, for Paul, a life lived by faith is also life lived in the Spirit. They are one and the same thing. And the way that works is basically this. Um, faith, uh, faith in Christ is how we also receive the Spirit. The person who has faith in Christ receives the Spirit. And so a life lived by faith is also a life lived in the Spirit. And in that way, Paul can use those two terms, um, by faith and in the Spirit, synonymously uh, throughout this chapter. Both, furthermore, are what it means to live by grace, because faith is also how we trust in the gift of God, the grace of God, which is uh, Jesus Christ um, crucified and raised from the dead for our sins. Um, so to live by faith is also to live according to God's grace, is also to live in the Spirit. And those three, um, those three ideas, living by faith, living according to grace, living in the Spirit, are all synonymous um, for Paul at this point. So finally he gets down to verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, uncircumcision suffices for anything, but rather faith working through love. He's told us something extremely important here, um, both what doesn't matter and what does. Uh, so on the one hand, we've seen Paul throughout this letter say that being, circumcision, being circumcised, um, you know, whether that means for you being an e a member of the ethnic people of Israel or whether that means um, taking on obedience to the law, um, these things will not justify you. Uh, circumcision will not suffice for justification. But what's important here is that he also says, neither will uncircumcision. Don't get the idea that just because circumcision does not uh, suffice for justification, that somehow the opposite does. That if um, being, being Jewish or being under the law um, does not suffice for justification, that somehow not being Jewish, in other words, being Gentile or not being under the law, somehow does suffice for your justification. Um, no, the truth is that neither, um, it just, it just as Paul has argued throughout this letter, that no human status suffices for human justification, or uh, human justification. Justification before God is rather what I meant to say. Um, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision suffices for anything. Um, they don't matter. Your, your human status, whatever it may be, does not matter. Uh, what does matter, rather, is faith, that is faith in Christ working through love. Um, and so, it's the, there's an idea here that Paul is presenting. It's not really the first time he's presented it in the letter. It's just the clearest time so far. There's an idea here that faith, that is trust in Christ, actually does something within us. Um, faith works within us. Um, it, it, has, it has an effect. It has some sort of transforming effect. Um, faith is not just something that we, uh, that we exercise. It, it, it is that initially, perhaps, but um, it also is something that then operates within us. It works within us and does something to us. Um, and, and faith in this way, as it works within us, uh, again, we can think of this as synonymous with the work of the Spirit within us, the work of God's Spirit within us. 
Uh, so as we trust in Christ by faith, the Spirit is also operating within us. Um, as, as faith works within us, it also shows itself outwardly through love. And so that is what he means here by faith working through love, the outward external expression of what God is doing within us is love. Um, the love that we exercise, ultimately, Paul will say in this chapter, the love that we exercise for one another. We can compare all this, actually, to what Paul has already said way back in the letter um, in chapter 2, verse 20, where he said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, in the, Paul's old life is over. The new life that he lives, he lives by faith. In other words, he lives it according to what faith is doing within him, what God is doing through faith within him. And, and it's important here in 2.20 that this faith is not just any faith. It's not just faith for the sake of faith, but it is specifically faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this, this faith that operates within us, that has its external expression in love shown to one another, is a faith, first of all, in the Son of God who loved us uh, and gave himself for us. Um, and so what the one that we have faith in and what he did for us produces a similar external effect in us afterward. Um, okay, so that's the first, his first point here. Um, people who have been set free do not return to slavery. Um, and he concludes that whole section there in verse 6 with this idea of faith working through love, which he will come back to. Uh, chapter, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 read as a little bit of an aside, um, and not so much one of Paul's main points, but a little bit of an aside in the argument. But uh, there are a couple important points to note here in verses 7 through 12. Paul expresses both his confidence and we could say his frustration um, in this paragraph, his confidence regarding the Galatians themselves that, um, that Christ having been at work in them, uh, the fact that they belong to Christ, they won't be lost. Paul has confidence um, uh, in that. Uh, at the same time, we see by the end of the paragraph his extreme frustration with the people who are leading them astray, a frustration that we've seen throughout this letter, um, but this might be the clearest expression of that frustration that we see uh, anywhere. So, um, but let me go back to this point about Paul's confidence. Um, I noted just a minute ago in verse 4 that he seems to really entertain this possibility that people could reject Christ and therefore be, you know, they could, they could choose another way and therefore be disjoined from Christ and fall from grace. In verse 10, he balances that with uh, the statement that he says, I am confident about you in the Lord that you will be of no other mind. In other words, that you will uh, make the right choice and follow the right path in the end. Um, but what's important here is that while he is confident about the Galatians, he is not confident in the Galatians. His confidence is rather in Christ. Um, and we see this, this kind of thinking regularly throughout Paul's letters. I've noted just a few 
parallels here to this kind of thinking in, in uh, other of Paul's letters. But Paul does not really express confidence in humans. He doesn't really express confidence in believers themselves to stay the course. What he expresses is confidence in Christ, um, as he puts it in Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion uh, in the day of Christ Jesus. Um, the confidence is entirely in Christ. As Jesus says in John's gospel, uh, he has lost none of those to whom the Father has given him. Paul seems to have a similar confidence about Jesus, that he does not lose um, his people. And so, um, sometimes we, uh, we talk about uh, perseverance of the saints. Lately, I've been wondering if Paul wouldn't rather talk about the perseverance of Christ. Um, Paul's confidence regarding believers' destiny is consistently rooted in Christ himself rather than in believers themselves. Um, so, but that is how he balances this thought that on the one hand, you know, could, could you, the Galatians, uh, could, you, could you fall from grace? Sure you could, but he's also confident in the Lord that he's not going to lose you at the end of the day. So, the difference is that it won't be you um, who, uh, who, who has the, um, it's not dependent on you, it's dependent on Christ. Um, okay, so let me look at verses 13 through 15, which are really crucial here. And here Paul gives us his second um, answer to the fundamental questions of this chapter. Uh, how do free people live? Uh, the second way is that, you know, the second way, as he tells us here, is do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh. Um, verse 13, he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. So he's coming back up to this point um, that he started with in verse 1. Uh, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let your freedom become an occasion or an opportunity for the flesh, but rather slave for one another through love. So, one of the things we see here is that freedom is opportunity. Uh, where you have freedom, you also have an opportunity. The question is, what will you do with it? What will you use it for? Uh, and a couple different options are presented to us here. One of those is that you, one, one thing you could, of course, do with your freedom is uh, to give a, an opportunity to the flesh, to use your freedom, so to speak, to do whatever you want, to indulge the flesh if you're no longer under the law. Um, this is exactly what Paul says we should not do. Uh, if God did not, on the one hand, set us free so that we could return to slavery, he also sure did not set us free so that we could live in sin, which would be a different kind of slavery all over again. Um, instead, he lays down a positive vision here, uh, a positive ethic, you could say, of living by grace through faith in the Spirit, uh, all defined by one word, summed up in one word, uh, which is love. But slave for one another through love, for the entire law is fulfilled in a single utterance in this one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, the, the irony here, and which I think is 100% intentional on Paul's part, is, is that he says slave for one another through love. Uh, what should you actually do with your freedom? Not use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but willingly um, lay down your life for your fellow, uh, for, for your fellow human beings. Um, lay down your life for one another in love. And so, uh, ironically, um, using your freedom 
to take the choice to slave for one another um, for and out of, out of love, um, uh, which is analogous again to what Christ himself did for us. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me becomes a model for exactly how believers should behave uh, toward one another and exactly what we should positively use our freedom as an opportunity to do. Um, interestingly, in verse 14, he tells us the entire law is fulfilled in this single utterance, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so on the one hand, he's telling us that in doing so, as we slave for one another in love, if we use our freedom in Christ in this way, we will actually be fulfilling everything that the law intended in the first place. We may not be under the law, under this system of do's and don'ts anymore, but we will be fulfilling everything that the law ever intended and was meant um, to accomplish but could not accomplish. Um, he, Paul actually has a similar thought process in Romans 8.4 where he uh, writes that, among other things, what Christ, Christ has done with the law could not, and part of what that means is that through Christ uh, and through the Spirit, we have the ability to fulfill the just requirement of the law, the righteous requirement of the law. Um, uh, and so... So here, he sums it up in this word, love. Um, it, in love for one another, we will be fulfilling everything the law was intended for. Of course, we also can't miss here the uh, obvious echo of Jesus' teachings. Now, um, Paul is quoting Leviticus 19.18, uh, which Jesus himself quotes in the Gospels. Um, but, uh, but this is too, too close to how Jesus himself uses Leviticus. Uh, it's not just that they're both quoting Leviticus, but Jesus was very distinct in the way that he latched on to Leviticus 19.18 as um, the fulfillment of the entire law. Um, now Paul is doing the same thing, and uh, you know one of, the, one of the interesting things in New Testament scholarship is that um, um, Paul's letters, and certainly Galatians, which I think was the first of his letters, um, Paul's letters as a whole are written before any of the Gospels. So it's not as though Paul is reading one of the Gospels here and, um, and, and, uh, and getting this statement from one of the Gospels. What rather seems to be the case is that Jesus' teachings were already known among the apostles even before the Gospels were written down. And uh, Paul uh, seems to echo one of the teachings that later gets written down in the Gospels. So, um, kind of interesting. Um, more than kind of interesting, I think. But um, anyway, uh, so that's the first, that gets us through the first half of, uh, of Galatians 5. And, uh, and among other ideas, what we've seen here is that Paul is, um, again, primarily concerned with this question of how people free from the law should live, and the two greatest answers that he has, the greatest answer that he's given us so far is faith working through love, um, or as he puts it here, um, loving one another through which the entire law is fulfilled. So let me turn then to the second half of the chapter, and I'll read that for us from verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you most certainly will not bring the longing of the flesh to pass. 
For the flesh longs against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, so that you cannot do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law, and the works of the flesh are obvious. These are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, rages, rivalries, dissensions, heresies, envies, drunkenness, carousals, and those sorts of things, regarding which I tell you in advance, just as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. But you who are of Christ have crucified the flesh together with its passions and longings. If we live by the Spirit, we also hold together by the Spirit. Do not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay. Um, so, moving right along from this idea of faith working through love, Paul's going to get even a little bit more specific here, and, and as I said, for Paul throughout this chapter, um, living by faith is synonymous with um, living by the Spirit or walking by the Spirit, as he says here. And uh, one of the things that we see here is that the Spirit um, which is, again, a gift of God through Christ, so is, is God's grace. The fact that we have the Spirit is also God's grace um, uh, given to us through Christ. Uh, but the Spirit is really the key to the Christian life, as Paul uh, outlines it here. God's Spirit, to put it simply, God's Spirit operating within us enables us to live a new kind of life that we didn't have the possibility of before. And that is also part of what freedom means. Um, with the freedom that we have, we also have the possibility of a new kind of life, specifically made possible by the operation of God's Spirit within us. Um, and, and so he goes on in verse 17 to say very specifically, so um, part of what this means is that you cannot do whatever you want. Um, what, does, what does freedom from the law mean? Does it mean that we can do whatever we want? No, very explicitly here in verse 17, um, you cannot do whatever you want. Um, but, but he says, even so, um, so we, are, we are led by the Spirit, the Spirit operates within us, we cannot do whatever we want, but even so, this is not the same thing as being under the law. Um, under the law, the law, under the law, you had do's and don'ts, and it was up to you to keep them, to put the work in, to do what you were supposed to do, to not do what you were not supposed to do. So under the law, you have a system of do's and don'ts, but it is up to you to keep them. Led by the Spirit, on the other hand, it is God who works within us. God with, works within you until you naturally become someone who embodies God's law without being beholden to it. You are not answerable to the law. You are not beholden to it. But by the operation of God's Spirit within you, you will become the kind of person who naturally embodies everything that the law intended. Um, 
And so this is a very important difference. As he says, on the one hand, you cannot do whatever you want. This does not equal being under the law again. Um, rather, it is the influence of the Spirit within us. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the analogies that Paul can use elsewhere in his letters is one of the illustrations that he can use is literally being intoxicated. Um, as he says, uh, you know, be drunk on the Spirit, not, not wine, but the Spirit. And so, uh, if you want to know how Paul is envisioning this work of the Spirit within us, it's something like being under the influence, um, under the influence of the Spirit. Uh, so, so then, what should a life defined by the grace of God and freedom in Christ actually look like? Well, he gives us two lists to illustrate that, one negative, one positive. And he says on the, on the one hand, well, on the, on the one hand, the works of the flesh, which are to be avoided, are obvious, he says. And he outlines a few examples from verses 19 through 21, which I don't think is, well, it's clear that it's not meant to be an exhaustive list because he ends it with the phrase, and those sorts of things. Um, but he also says it's obvious. There is a sense here that if you have God's Spirit, um, those things that should be avoided, those works of the flesh, should be obvious to you. Um, you know what they are, he's saying, in effect. Uh, on the other hand, we also know what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, probably also not an exhaust exhaustive list, but a good list. So, between these two lists, one negative, one positive, he's given us uh, a good illustration of what a life defined by freedom in Christ should actually look like, and it does not look like doing whatever you want, um, but it is not, and it is not just freedom from the law, but it is also freedom for something better, um, beyond what the law was ever capable of accomplishing. But we can't make any mistake here. Paul is um, quite clear, and he emphasizes the point at the end of verse 21. Um, regarding which, talking about those works of the flesh again, regarding which I tell you in advance, just as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, I think Paul 100% means what he says here, that those who live lives that are defined by the practice of these works of flesh, practice is an important word here. He doesn't just say do one time. He means practice. In other words, your life could be defined by one or more of these uh, works of the flesh that he has stated here. Um, but I think he 100% means what he says, and he wants to make this absolutely clear to the people that he's writing to, that one thing that grace and freedom does not mean is that you can do whatever you want and inherit the kingdom of God all the same. Um, the idea that Bonhoeffer later referred to as cheap grace is explicitly denied here. Uh, but how so? And what does that mean? Uh, does, does salvation then come down to works after all? After all this talk about salvation not being works, is it actually about works after all at the end of the day? Well, no, absolutely not. I think that if, you were to, if we could ask Paul that question in person, we'd probably get one of his famous meganoitos. Absolutely not. May it never be. Um, on, on no terms whatsoever. Um, Salvation is by grace, and Paul's clear about that throughout this entire letter. 
But what he is also clear about here is that the operation of God's grace, specifically here His Spirit within us, ensures that we will be people who embody the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. I'll say that one more time. The operation of God's Spirit within us should ensure that we will be people who look like the fruit of the Spirit and not people who look like the works of the flesh. So what, what do we make then of the times when we don't? What do we make then of the times when perhaps we find ourselves looking a little bit too much like the works of the flesh or not enough like the fruit of the Spirit? Well, this is a question that I ask myself almost as often as I read this passage. And on the one hand, I think that Paul probably has a pretty clear answer for us. Um, in those times, what it means is that we are not fully living by the Spirit. Um, we do not perfectly live by the Spirit, uh, and there are times when we are still going to fall into the flesh. There are, it's not a strict either or, as though um, one either lives entirely in the freedom of Christ or entirely uh, in slavery to sin or something like that. Um, but, uh, but our lives are a mixed bag. But to the extent that we find ourselves looking like the works of the flesh, to that extent we are also not living by the Spirit. And what is needed is not simply to try harder, is not simply to, um, nor, nor to beat ourselves up and think um, that we're, we're definitely not inheriting the kingdom of God now, but rather to draw closer to God's Spirit and to walk in closer alignment with God's Spirit. Um, but on the other hand, the complete absence of any changed life may, and I think Paul wants to warn in this direction, the complete absence of a changed life in a believer may actually um, reveal the absence of real, genuine, justifying, and saving faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, because again, the underlying idea here is that if in fact um, you are living according to freedom in Christ, if in fact you are, um, you do have faith in Christ and you do possess God's Spirit and you are walking by God's Spirit, then your life should um, look distinctly more like one of these two lists than the other. And a real easy way of summing up Paul's thought here then is that is, is what he in effect is saying to us in verse 25 if we live by the spirit we also hold together by the spirit or continue by the spirit in short one of the messages of galatians 5 is that the christian life not only begins by grace but also continues by god's grace and only by god's grace from beginning to end we cannot live um we, we will not live out the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we will not avoid the works of the flesh apart from God's grace, and specifically the grace given to us through His own Spirit within us and in operation within us. Okay, so we have a couple minutes for questions. Um, yes, uh, one second, let me bring the mic back to you. My question is uh, on verse 5. I think when you said, okay, I'll read verse 5, then yeah. I'll ask my question. For through the Spirit, by faith, I think my beef in what you said or what I'm struggling with is the word you keep using, synonymous. 
And mm. I think it's not synonymous because without the spirit, there's no faith. So the spirit is what gives you the faith to do what you need to do. And again, if you go further down into, uh, uh, I think it's from 22, then it lists, it gives you a list of what the fruit of the spirit is. So again, I think my word is when you keep using synonymous, it's not, I'm thinking it's not synonymous. Mm. You need the spirit for the faith. Mm. Uh, thank you. So. Uh, my point in uh, with with Galatians here is is that uh, throughout chapter five, Paul is is using these terms by faith, uh, by the Spirit, in the Spirit, um, in a synonymous way. Um, not that they literally mean the same thing. I mean, the Spirit, uh, Spirit and faith, in a in a strictly literal sense, are not the same thing. Um, but I think that Paul is able to use those phrases throughout this chapter uh, to talk about the same reality, because the reality of what it means to live by faith is the same as the reality of what it means to live in the Spirit. And, I mean, to your point that um, we can't have faith without the Spirit, I mean, that would actually just reinforce that idea. Um, if we can't have faith without the Spirit, then that is one more reason to think that life by faith and life in the Spirit um, equal one another. Um, not the, which is not to say, again, that faith and Spirit mean the same thing. I mean, in literal terms, they don't. Um, but I think Paul is just speaking about what it means to live by faith and what it means to live in the Spirit and saying, uh, and, and he uses those two ideas interchangeably here. Um, uh, hope that helps, but if not, I'll happy to follow up further with you. So, uh, any other questions? All the questions are in the back of the room. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so that phrase, faith working in lo through love, um, I think some theologians have taken this to be at odds with justification by faith alone because they're going to view justification as infused righteousness. It's something that's changing you from the inside out. Um, and you kind of spoke around along those lines in this passage. So I'm wondering if this is a passage that's very helpful for um, sort of the Reformation debate about justification and like where do those theologians go wrong? Like what do you say to them if someone comes to you and says, but this says faith working through love, you know? It seems like I need to have the works, otherwise, you mm -hmm. know, it's not genuine mm -hmm. faith. So, you know, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a debate here. Can you... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so... Um, yeah, so, yeah, um, thank you very much. That's a great question, and, I mean, you're absolutely right um, about the debate. Uh, and so, sure, medieval Catholic theology, and I think for the most part Catholic theology up to the present day, um, has this idea of infused righteousness, and this idea of faith working through love can be construed along those lines by uh, such theologians sometimes. Um, I don't think that that works um, in, uh, for Paul's, for, in Galatians, and here are a few reasons why. Um, number one, for, uh, for typical Catholic views, justification itself consists 
of uh, justification by faith itself results in infused righteousness, meaning um, the, the, you know, some sort of internal uh, transformation happens, um, uh, you know, through the act of faith itself and plays itself out then in, um, in works. And uh, that may sound extremely similar to what I've said here in this reading of Galatians, but the, there's a crucial, there are a couple, there's one crucial middle term in there that is missing um, in that construal that we find in Galatians, and that's the Spirit. Um, it is not faith itself uh, that brings um, direct transformation uh, into us. It is uh, because faith in Christ also results in the gift of the Spirit and it is the operation of the Spirit of God Himself within us, so that when, um, when the works appear, um, you know, there are works, I mean, as, as Paul says in Ephesians, we are created for good works, um, uh, but those, those works are not uh, done by ourselves, uh, they are done by the operation of God's Spirit within us. Um, and so that middle term is crucial. Um, and, uh, and, and faith working through love in this way is not counter to justification by faith um, because, uh, because that, working, that working of faith is, is really a shorthand for also the work of the Spirit um, within us. Um, does that help? And I, so, I mean, for me, I think that is the, the, the Spirit really is the crucial middle term that separates what I think is authentically Paul's view from... Um, uh, some other construals. So, um, okay, uh, we're at 11.19, so I have to end here, um, but uh, happy to entertain further questions outside or by email, but thank you all.